Right now on Fast, beware big tech. That's the warning from one top investor who says it is too early to get behind the mega cap rally, even after the strength it's seen the last few weeks. Plus, towing the line in Taiwan, Speaker Nancy Pelosi expected to touch down there, despite some big warnings from China why she is making the trip and what it might mean for relations between the U.S. and Beijing. And is it time to bank on the banks? The sector struggling all year long. We'll be joined by the CEO of KBW to find out where it's heading from here. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of Times Square on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Guy Dami, Karen Feinerman, and Brian Kelly. And we start this first trading day of August with a bit of a breather for stocks. Major indices pulling back a bit after their best month since 2020. Stocks climbing a wall of worry on everything from inflation to the dollar to mounting job cuts. One of our traders says the biggest risk to the market isn't any of these things. It's that we do not go into a recession. Brian Kelly, explain yourself. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit provocative, but to borrow a phrase from Blades of Glory, I'm giving the people what they want here. So here is what I'm thinking. We just had this massive rally, all because the Fed, or at least the market thought, the Fed pivoted. Whether they did or didn't doesn't matter. The market thought that, have this massive rally. So the market is pricing in a recession and a pivot. Now the Fed is trying to engineer a slowdown so they can fight inflation. So what happens if we don't get that slowdown? All of a sudden, inflation starts to creep back up again, re-accelerate. How do you think the Fed's going to react? They're going to slam on the brakes one more time to fight inflation. And so this is the 1973 playbook all over again that you, as soon as you let up on the gas, the economy starts to take off again. So the worst thing for this market, the way it's priced today, in my view, would be that you don't have a recession, and that implies that inflation starts to take off and the Fed has to hit the brakes. So basically, we're too far ahead of our or over our skis in a way in terms of the market's thinking on the the point on the pivot to the point where we don't actually experience the recession that is needed to slow the economy down to the point where the Fed is satisfied. Tim, would you agree? I mean, I I like where BK is going on the blaze of glory thing. I'm not sure. (laughs) But that's that's, you know, but I I, I think where the market has taken uh, financial conditions, first of all, the tightness that we're in markets was something that was good for the Fed. Um, What's happened with the 10 year? We went from roughly 345 on the 10 year closed at 257 today. Two's tens. We talk about the curve. We know that it's gone inverted. In fact, it gets more inverted by the day. So 30 basis points inversion is certainly something that the, the, the history books tell us uh, are going to give us the kind of recession. How severe do we want? I, I don't know, but I think we're going to continue to hear comments from the Fed, whether it's Jerome Powell, but we heard it from former New York Fed President Bill Dudley, who was talking about, look, the markets aren't helping the Fed right here. He thinks the terminal rate uh, is closer to 4%. And look at Fed fund futures, which I, I bet our audience doesn't do on a regular basis. But let me just tell you, we went from after that June Fed meeting where we were around 360, 370 uh, by the middle part of next year. We're all the, all the way down to 320, and, and the market doesn't expect anything out of the Fed basically from December through middle part of next year. So weaker data out of China, weaker data out of the ISM today, and there's some sense here that we do need to see um, more weakness out of the economy uh, to really put the, the Fed on pause. I don't think the Fed's going to pause at all. I don't think the Fed should pause at all. In fact, I'd be pretty scared if they did. I mean, it was really, you know, hawkishness or dovishness 
Williams was in the eye of beholder when it came to the Fed, uh, you know, news conference last week. Karen, <laughs> you're comparing it to what was that, the Yanni, the blue dress, gold dress kind of thing, where you know, yes, two people exactly. see the one thing and interpret it. It's completely different. I felt like that's exactly um, what Jerome Powell, you know, was the reaction to Jerome Powell's uh, news conference last week. So. Where do you see, you've been arguing, Karen, that we need to see the recession. We're better off getting it done and getting it done quickly. Yes, and I, I think they were hawkish. I think that they're nowhere near done. I, I believe that inflation has peaked. However, inflation needs to come down so dramatically that I think the Fed has no choice, absolutely no choice, given that they've said inflation is their main priority. So I, I think they're nowhere near pivoting. And so I expect to see them hike. I guess, I mean, with the reaction to the last hike, I don't know, one could guess that every hike is a good thing. But we, I think, though, that the byproduct of that, talk about this a lot, is we've seen housing cool. I think we're going to see another uh, several areas of the economy cool as well. So I'm not really buying this rally. I feel like, you know, there's more pain to come. And we haven't even really seen QT yet. So I think there's more pain to come. I'm not really buying stuff up here. It's been a really, really sharp rally. And I think just a, a whiff of that this pivot isn't what they're saying will really be problematic for the market. So yeah. I, I, one other thing, though, I do think for some of the stocks, the bottom might be in. For the market overall, I don't think it is. Yeah, and that's an important differentiation to say the markets versus certain sectors, Guy. There are certain sectors that have really taken a beating. There are certain stocks and certain sectors that have rebounded, you know, so almost fully from their lows. It's an amazing round trip. It's remarkable. And, you know, just to stay with the blades of glory, the Fed's trying to pull an iron lotus here. And I got to tell you something, the first time that was attempted, <laughs> it did not work out all that well. So... I'm, I'm with Karen on this one. You know, we've talked about the, re, the market rallying to 4,100 since the middle of June. Now, here we are on August 1st, and here it is at 4,100. And it's logical that the market uh, takes a pause here and sells off. So Steve Leisman said it on Fed Day. He said he listened to this Fed chair, and he came away with hawkish tones. And Karen did as well, as did I. I don't see any Fed pivot in the foreseeable future. And although 9.1% on that CPI might in fact be the high we see for a very long time. Let's hope that's the case. Even if this were to come in with a six, high six, low seven handle, you're still talking about a CPI that's probably three standard deviations away from the Fed where it wants it to be and needs it to be. So I think there's a lot of wood to chop here. I don't see any pivot. I think the market goes lower. No, Guy, you're right. And, and I think if you consider we have a payroll number on Friday, right? So it really now it's let's focus on jobs. Let's focus on employment and let's focus on the inflationary aspect of that. I, I, I think the stickiness, we say this all the time on the show, that the labor market stickiness is part of what I don't think really has even fed fully into the market. It's going to be very difficult on one. But what's the Fed's appetite for unemployment? And where's the Fed actually see we get to this non, non-accelerating inflationary rate of inflation, this, this, this Nairu or whatever it is. But I think you have to watch that. I think if you look at uh, semiconductors today and back to the markets, though, um, eked out another victory. This is after a 26 percent move in 19 days off the lows. And so uh, the other side of all this, whether the Fed pivots or not, if they are less aggressive and rates are lower, this helps 
high multiple and growth tech. Whether it should be rallying here, I don't know. But this is the conundrum. I think we get back to BK's right. blades of glory. One yeah. more time. I mean, rates are lower. Amazing. Stocks go higher. Rates are lower. People go back into the housing market because all of a sudden you can get a mortgage um, for, you know, three plus percent or whatever it is um, for whatever product you're going for, BK. So it's sort of like, you know, you make some progress there and, and, and it's, it's the opposite for the Fed. You think that the markets are going to go higher. You think, that, right. you know, it's time to get into housing. Those are all things that the Fed does not want to see. The byproducts of what the Fed is doing that's, must be that these things go lower. It, that's exactly right. And the Fed has told you that, right? They've blown a bubble in every single asset class. Housing, stocks, crypto, you name it. They've blown a bubble. Everybody's balance sheet is better than it's ever been. So everybody and then the employment market is tighter than it's ever been. So what does the Fed want? They need to bring that all down. They need unemployment to go up. They need housing prices to go down. They need stock market prices to go down so the wealth effect starts to come in. So I would just say that the hikes will continue until morale dies. Wow, we all sound really (laughs) bearish today on this Monday, the first day of August. What is, though, what is the one thing, Karen, that maybe... All of you guys are getting wrong or not seeing or, or discounting too much. I, I think a quick and, uh, and significant improvement in the supply chain would help, but I'm not that optimistic that that's going to happen in the very near term. I, I just think we haven't heard enough about demand. It's been actually a, an excellent earnings season, if you think about it. Maybe we, we haven't really gotten the downgrades. A lot of companies have reaffirmed numbers, especially industrial companies. And, and, and despite inventory issues at a Walmart and some of the issues in the retail sector, we haven't really heard what, again, I think we want. And I know that feels... I. I I don't know. I, I don't want a recession, I, but I want to hear from companies. You can't tell me that Apple isn't going to see some kind of a pullback in demand. That has not been priced into stocks. That's what concerns me. That's really been the trend of this earnings season. It's been pushing it out that much farther. And if you look at labor markets again, with, with, with almost near record unemployment, how are you going to see a recession? This is not a recession, and maybe technically it is, but this isn't really what we're all talking about. And I think that's what we're pondering and where we can go. But, you know, S&P down 14 percent from all-time highs. Um, and again, blow off top highs by many people's estimates with rates at zero. And 25 percent are core, uh, you know, of, of the, the government's balance sheet thrown at markets in the last couple of years with a Fed that didn't care. I, I feel like we need to see this longer. And I've said this before, the duration of an inflation-inspired uh, recession and market impact is is a lot longer than six to nine months. It's more like 18 months to two years. And, you know, I I hate to say it's a fait accompli. I mean, we are quarters away from starting to feel the first impacts of the Fed's tightening campaign. I mean, if we are just to think about the 150 basis point hikes that we've seen in the past couple of months, that doesn't hit the economy for quarters from from this point on, Guy. That's exactly right. And you know, the administration came out and said this recession, it's not a recession by their new definition, has been caused by a Federal Reserve that's trying to slow things down and fight inflation. There's some truth to that, but not really. I mean, to your point, the effects of this won't be felt for quite some time. So what we saw is the natural progression into now what's going to be, I think, a slowdown. So there's a lot of wood to chop here. I'm, I'm mm. totally with Tim in his assessment. I mean, these things last a lot longer than we want them to. Now, maybe nowadays things move quicker. And so maybe it's not 18 months, maybe it's a year. But 
We're still many, many months away from feeling the effect of what the Fed correctly is doing right now. Our next guest doesn't think we're in a recession right now. He doesn't think one is priced in, but investors should brace for more market downside ahead. Let's welcome back Dan Suzuki, the Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. You're in good company today, Dan. We've got a lot of people who think that there's a lot more uh, downside to the markets here. Um, what's, your, what's your sort of reasoning behind this? And, and why, why is it not possible that perhaps the markets are so forward-looking that we are pricing in that period of time that is beyond uh, the impacts of the full Fed tightening, that we are pricing in the period beyond this inflationary period? Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, hey, Melissa, and, and the whole conversation, I can't agree more with pretty much everybody's comments so far. I think everybody's spot on. <clears throat> this debate about whether we're in a recession or not is just kind of silly, right? I think you know what, what people are mistaking for recession is a broad-based slowdown. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that pretty much every significant part of the economy is slowing right now. And if this continues down this pace, we will eventually be in a recession. But to say that we're in a recession right now, where huge components of the, the economy, you know, namely the labor market, you know, are incredibly still strong, yet slowing, but strong, you know, it, it kind of misses the point. And in terms of being priced in, Certainly, you know, the markets have priced in. You know, I think what's more been priced in is the tightening of liquidity, the inflation story, and the Fed, and less so the slowdown in growth, although some of that has been priced in. But the reality is, what recession have we ever seen in history where, you know, with the Fed ultimately, you know, cut, you know, 50, 60, 70 basis points? That's basically what's priced in. And I don't think that's a real logical you know, estimate of what cuts are really going to look like if we're in a recession. So I don't think the bond market's pricing in. I don't think the stock market's pricing in either. And Dan, after a 16 or 17 percent off those lows rally in the NASDAQ, you know, mega cap tech stocks aren't pricing it in. What have you heard in this earnings season? I just talked about I, I haven't heard. Uh, and I know you're saying there's two certainties. Uh, Fed will hike and, and EPS will go lower. Earnings are, are not going to go higher in this environment. What did you hear in this earnings season in terms of the cadence of this market move? We're all trying to kind of time it. We all believe that some of these conditions haven't really been felt yet. Um, I'm just curious what you heard. I mean, I, Tim, I heard the same the same things you heard, which is Basically, things have slowed, but not as much as feared. And I think that's true with every part of the economy, including, you know, the earnings we got from the big tech companies. I think that's right. I mean, we basically, the market braced for some really, really horrible earnings. I think it was, you know, the topic of every research report for a good three weeks going into earnings season was just how bad it was going to be. It wasn't a great earnings season, but people were braced for the worst. I think people have that mentality with regards to a lot of the economic data as well. My issue is not with this earnings season, but I think we're on the wrong side of the profit cycle. So in this part where things are slowing, it's not just this earnings season where, again, people were braced for that. It's the next earnings season, the earnings season after that. And then typically, you know, you're going to see, especially as earnings go negative for a lot of these companies, you're going to see you know, a lot more layoffs, a lot more job cuts, a lot more write downs. And that, thing's, that, that, that dynamic is going to spiral. And I think that's what's going to catch people off. Um, you're going full defensive, Dan, healthcare, staples, utilities, but stay on the sidelines is your, is your bottom line message. Does cash figure, figure into this, given your market outlook? Yeah, on the, uh, on the fixed income side of our portfolio, I mean, we're kind of a barbell between, you know, cash and cash-like, you know, short duration, you know, floating rate stuff, and then, on, and then ultra long, you know, high quality treasury exposure. I think right now it's a, it's a good time to own a good amount of cash. 
but it's a good time to own duration as well. I mean, we've been pounding the table that you don't want to own duration, but if the next leg of this you know, cycle is really going to be about the growth slowdown and less the liquidity story, I think duration makes a lot of sense here. Dan, good to speak with you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Dan Suzuki. Brian Kelly, um, last time we talked, I think you said your top drawer was empty, meaning your long-term investment. <laughs> is, is it yes. still empty? I am assuming it is. Yeah, I've got nothing in my drawers. Nothing whatsoever. No, I, I mean, listen, I bought some bonds today. I think that's probably a decent play for the short term. We've had 20 to 30 years of a bond market that's manipulated. And now finally, you can kind of listen to the message of the bond market. So going to what Dan said, you know, if you're looking at yields going lower, that is a sign that the economy is weakening. So if I had to buy like one thing, maybe it's maybe it's TLT or something like that. I think that's probably the place to be. All right, coming up, we're all over the after hours action. Pinterest and Simon Property shares of both companies on the move after reporting results. We'll bring you the numbers next, plus espresso earnings. Starbucks results on deck. So we're checking in on the options pits to see how traders are brewing up for this one. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert here on Pinterest. Shares are surging 21.5% after activists from Elliott Investment Management announced it is now the largest shareholder at the social media company. The company did miss on the top and the bottom lines. Julia Borson's got this all covered. Julia. Elliot explaining why it's become the company's largest, largest shareholder, writing in a statement, quote, Pinterest is a highly strategic business with significant potential for growth, going on to say, quote, Pinterest occupies a unique position in the advertising and shopping ecosystems. And CEO Bill Reddy is the right leader to oversee Pinterest's next phase of growth. Now, of course, Melissa, as you mentioned, this focus on Pinterest's potential to build out a shopping business comes after a top and bottom line miss for the company. But 433 million monthly active users did beat estimates by 2 million. That number is flat with the prior quarter, but better than the decline than anticipated. Now, in terms of guidance, Pinterest projecting mid-single-digit revenue growth in Q3. That's lower than the nearly 13% growth as the analyst consensus, but it's still better than the decline that Meta forecast and better than some analysts had feared. So new CEO Bill Reddy, he's on the call right now talking about the advantage of knowing what their users are looking for and what they want to buy, which of course makes Pinterest less vulnerable to some of those privacy changes that have hurt both the likes of Snap and also Meta. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Julia, thanks. Julia Borston. Uh, Guy Dami, what'd you make of the quarter of, of this Elliott move? Well, it's not a good quarter, but for this Elliott move, the stock would probably be lower. I think we'd agree with that, but there's still some value here. And we talked about it when we first heard about Elliott in early July. Heard on the street column, I think, from the Wall Street Journal on July 16th. And I think you stay with it. You know, at its trough, it was probably trading around, I don't know, four times next year's revenue. So it's obviously a little more expensive now, but not ridiculous. So despite the move, I think you can stay with it now. I don't think you have to chase because we've seen stocks do the back and fill, but I think you stay long Pinterest here for the reasons cited. 
Yeah, uh, Tim? Well, this is a case, and, and we've talked about, and Karen's made mention of this, and I'm not going to attach her to, to necessarily loving Pinterest, but you know, what are the companies that have bottomed? What are the companies that bottomed um, maybe first or have been grinding around? I mean, Pinterest has been grinding around since February um, at these levels. If you actually look at the charts, especially with this after-hours move, you haven't seen this company challenge the 100-day the and trade through it uh, in, in almost a year and a half. So um, what's, what's, I guess, the, the biggest debate here, and I, you know, I don't want to debate Elliot, who's been doing this... Uh, uh, very well and effectively for 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 many years is 60 billion or so under management but but what makes this company profitable now and what what changes I, I get the fact that they're at this strategic crossroads between e-commerce and social media and 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 whatnot but but it, but it hasn't equated and and so this is really the question here hearing that kind of an endorsement in a management team and a CEO specifically from Elliot that that's good news for investors and, and I'll just say that that technically this is an interesting place in the stock but I, I you know I don't chase this one I mean, Crossroads, it's confusing because you got four different ways you could possibly yes. go. Yes. I think that may be no an interest problem. I mean, um, there's a short interest component to the story. It's, it's healthy. It's not super high. It's 8%, Karen. But I'm wondering what you think of, of Elliott's uh, move into this. So we knew it a little bit, you know, a couple yeah. of weeks ago they started. Clearly, it is a very strong endorsement of the new CEO. It's interesting to me. He, the, the, the thing that make, making the stock move beside Elliott being the biggest shareholder now is also that forward revenue uh, guidance up, right? It's interesting to me that a brand new CEO would sort of go out on a limb to put that guidance out there. He must be very confident that they'll be able to meet it. Otherwise, I would kind of be dumb to sort of miss it right out of the box. So I have no doubt he's a smart guy. So he's got to feel really confident. That's interesting to me when you look at what happened with the rest of social media that, you know, flat was the new up and getting to flat would be seen as great. So this is impressive. Yeah, he would have had a free pass just leaving it alone or taking it lower even. Um, let's get on to Simon Property. Um, earnings out after the bell as well today. The stock is jumping after beating earnings estimates by $0.08 cents a share. It missed on revenues. The company also increasing full-year guidance. Sounds familiar. Courtney Reagan joins us with the latest in the conference call. Courtney. Hey there, Melissa. Yeah, it shares higher by about two and a half percent or so here. The shopping center REIT did also raise its dividend by about three percent. Net operating income, that's a key metric, of course, when you're looking at REITs. Simon portfolio in total net income NOI grew 4.6 percent year over year. U.S. mall and premium outlet occupancy, that's almost at 94 percent, up from 91.8 percent last year. The call is ongoing, as you mentioned, and CEO David Simon said, quote, the higher income consumer is in good shape and so there's some softness and more value-oriented brands, but demand for our space is extremely strong. Those were three separate comments made during that conference call. Its mall sales grew 7% in the quarter, sales per square foot hitting a record $746 for malls and outlets combined. That's up 26% year over year. Simon emphasized the company has zero cash equity in that Spark vehicle that's a part owner of JCPenney and a number of other troubled brands that it swooped in to either buy or be a part owner of. Simon Property Group does give investors, of course, a peek into consumer behavior when you're looking at consumer traffic and sales within its tenant mix ahead of some of those retailers reports where we get more of the nitty gritty details. But of course, as a REIT, it's going to trade a little bit differently than the retailers. It's going to be more sensitive to interest rate changes, which of course are front and center right now. So shares of SPG have outperformed the broader retail ETF, the XRT, over the last week and over the last month. And again, uh, for those that are following along here, shares are higher 2% after hours. Melissa. All right, Court, thanks. Courtney Reagan. Um, Karen, your thoughts on SPG? 
So uh, clearly this is the high end, right? This is the A malls. So it's a little bit of a different uh, consumer and it's definitely a different retailer. So one thing I thought was interesting in their little supplemental data, they put out their occupancy 93.9 versus 91.8. That's great. Then they put out their average rent 5503 and didn't mention over what. So I had to go back and look over <laughs> what. Uh, I'm sorry, 54.58. It was last year higher. I just find that interesting. Why not give us the actual data? Why make us go look for it? Still impressive from them. I mean, do you remember, you know, they, they were on not death's door, but it was looking very, very bad two years ago. And they've just done an extraordinary job. And that Taubman acquisition probably ended up being decent. So uh, I don't own it, but um, it was a good quarter. There's no, it was better than I thought it would be. They don't put it in there because they don't think people are like the chairwoman and will actually go hunt for the figure a year back. Uh, Brian Kelly, what kind of read is this for you, if any, into retail? Uh, well, I think, you know, I think it's more of a read on the economy and a lot of stuff that we talked about. Right. So uh, all the things that that was really good about this quarter, they you know, they increased their dividend. Uh, their rents are good. Ninety four percent occupancy Their Their retail stores are seeing strong demand. All of those things are what the Fed don't want. That's what they're fighting against. They do not want that type of strength. So what I'm concerned is, is this as good as it gets for something like a Simon, where you know, you're really not going to be able to get higher rents. Are you going to be able to fill more stores? Probably not. So you know, if you're in it for the dividend, great, good for you. But up 2%, I'm probably a profit taker on this. Coming up, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi expected to visit Taiwan. We'll break down the impact the stock could have on U.S.-China relations. The details straight ahead. Plus, are there grande gains in store for Starbucks? The coffee chain reporting results after the bell tomorrow. We'll find out how options traders are playing it. You're watching Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert out of D.C. on a meeting between the White House and retail executives in an effort to bring down prices. Kayla Tausch, she's got the details. Kayla. Melissa, we're learning from sources that the White House has held meetings with top big box retail executives to discuss the potential impact on consumer prices if certain China tariffs are removed. Retailers said not immediately, according to people briefed on the meetings. The retailer said it would have been more straightforward a year ago before the cost of their labor and transportation had risen too. Inflation, these retailers said, was now fairly broad-based, but as soon as the company's own costs go down, they told the White House they would pass any of those savings on. The meetings, I'm told, took place in mid-June when top executives, including re representatives from Walmart, were in D.C. for events at the National Retail Federation. A senior administration official confirmed the discussion and tells me that the conversations on potential for pass-through to consumers happens often, telling me economists all have models associated with this, but understanding in real time from operating companies is important. The official tells me all options for China tariffs remain on the table. There's no word on when President Biden will make a decision and how he will proceed. Melissa. Kayla, thanks. Kayla Tausche. Meantime, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi kicking off her trip to Asia today with reports that she could touch down in Taiwan within hours. She would be the highest ranking U.S. official to visit the island in 25 years. 
her trip sparking backlash in Beijing. For more on the potential impact of the trip, let's bring in Longview Global Managing Director and Senior Policy Analyst Dewardrick McNeil. He's a former advisor to the Obama administration. Dewardrick, always good to see you. I, I, don't under, you. I don't understand why Pelosi is making this trip at the risk of, of worsening relations between the U.S. and China. Why poke the bear right now? Well, Melissa, it's a good question. I don't think that the speaker quite sees it that way. There are a number of legitimate reasons why a speaker would want to travel to Taiwan, primarily, Melissa, to look at the growing gap between Taiwan's military and the People's Liberation Army, a gap, Melissa, that could, quite frankly, allow for China to unilaterally and militarily determine a Taiwan's future. And it is something that provisions of the Taiwan Relations Act, which the speaker is directly in charge of overseeing, along with her colleagues, to make sure that the administration adheres to and implements that act. Those provisions are designed specifically so that Taiwan would not be compelled uh, to do China's bidding by force. So there are a number of reasons for her to do that. As a principal matter, Melissa, I would say that very few people here in Washington thinks that it's a good idea to give China an effective veto over when and where uh, U.S. citizens or U.S. officials uh, may travel. Although, Eduardo, it's Tim, and I would just say the, the, the sphere of influence dynamic, which, which we know is um, extremely emotional, and I think there's been all kinds of metaphors used uh, on the you know, bending of the will and playing with fire of 1.4 billion people recently. Um, it, it, do you have to go down this road? And, and I understand that, look, uh, Ms. Pelosi is on tour in Asia, meeting with allies. If anything, the message has been about stable U.S.-China relations and how they are important for the region. Um, I, I guess I'll ask the question a little bit differently. Um, why stop in Taiwan when, in fact, we knew or it would be obvious that this is a very difficult issue? Um, is it partly because China is seen as a, you know, a common enemy politically in this country right now? Um, and if anything, this is political gamesmanship. Yeah, well, I think for Beijing, they can speak for themselves. On the speaker, though, Tim, I do want to stress the importance of understanding firsthand what's happening on the ground. The, the, the PLA, quite frankly,'s modernization effort has really pressed Taiwan's ability to make its own decisions about its future. And the Taiwan Relations Act is absolutely clear about what the U.S. would like to see in the cross straits. And it's not a unilateral military change in the status quo. And so I suspect the speaker, uh, looking at that, hearing more and more of China's aggression uh, against Taiwan, uh, thinks that it's time for her uh, to land and to take a look at the situation for herself. Now, Tim, to your point, I do expect that we will see potentially some type of, of military response. And I say response because that's not an attack on Taiwan. Perhaps you'll see incursions in, in Taiwan's air defense identification zone. But there's another thing that we should be mindful of, Tim, and that is China has other non military means to respond, like by targeting U.S. companies with this new anti-foreign sanctions act. And we've seen that happen earlier the year with Raytheon and Lockheed. So we could see a non-military response. But to your point, this is a real serious issue for China, for U.S.-China relations. But, you know, I think the speaker's reasoning for going is legitimate from where I sit. Hey, Dwardrick, it's Karen Feinerman. Thanks for being on. So I'm wondering, the, you know, the timing is so curious, given the call that Biden just had with Xi Jinping 
Do you think he has given her his blessing to do this and he's sort of flexing his muscles or do you think he would rather she weren't, didn't go right now? Well, I mean, there's this thing as a co-equal branch of government, Karen. So I'm not sure that the White House is necessarily pleased uh, with the trip, but uh, certainly it's the speaker's call given that uh, she leads uh, Congress, a co-equal branch of government. But I suspect uh, the timing is not ideal, uh, to say the least. Dewarta, always great to get your analysis. Appreciate it. Thank you, Melissa. Dewardrick McNeil, um, you know, Dewardrick brings up a very interesting point in terms of non-military retaliation, which I don't know many people are factoring in, Brian Kelly, in terms of, you know, retaliation against corporations, for instance, which might impact U.S. companies. Right. I mean, that that's what it would be, is sanction some U.S. Com uh, companies from Nancy Pelosi's district or other leadership districts or something like that. But I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a political analyst, but it seems like maybe she, she could probably get the same information with like a Skype call or something and say, hey, you know, is there a big army <laughs> over there? OK, yeah, there's a big army. Great. We got a problem. I don't buy that at all. What I do think could be is the news that just came out from D.C. that all of a sudden we're going to let these tariffs go on China. Meanwhile, Pelosi goes over there. It's a little bit of a, you know, this for that, a ah. little bit of a negotiation. We're still holding China's feet to the fire. But you know what? We'll let the tariffs go because we need it. So that sounds more likely to me than she has to oversee the military and count how many people they have. Uh, Guy? BK makes a great point. I mean, you got to believe something's in the works and listen i get co-equal branch of government but it's not that she's going to rome i mean she's going to one of the hot button places in the world right now so my sense is you had to get clearance or some sort of air cover from the administration with that said bk just i was sitting here like nodding my head when kayla was talking my like, god ah, now this all starts to make sense you know we'll sort of pull back the tariffs if you allow nancy to go there you can save a rattle if you want but everything is going to be fine so Problem here, though, is if she doesn't go, we look like we've backed down. And if she goes full stop, we're sort of in their face. So maybe this is what assuages the concerns on the Chinese front. And just bringing politics back into investing in Chinese stocks, it, it, you know, in the last week or so, we've, there's been formalization that Jack Ma is out at Ant Financial. Yeah. He's been seen traveling in Europe, which is, you know, kind of notable because no one had seen him for a long time. The question for investors about investing in China is, is have, have the Chinese authorities gotten what they wanted? Did they, did they, did they absolutely have the show of force in terms of their markets, especially their big tech companies? And does that give them now the ability to say, all right, it's investable again? That's a big debate. Alibaba's been all over the map trading back to 90 after being up near 130. I mean, this has been a roller coaster. It's been a trading stock. All right. Coming up, latte options on deck. Starbucks earnings out after the bell tomorrow. Options traders could be betting on shares getting roasted. How they're playing it next. Plus, we're digging into the bank trade. Should you be betting on the big guys or the boutiques? Got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Starbucks managing to hold on to gains today ahead of earnings tomorrow after the bell. And options traders are betting the company might be brewing up some disappointing results. Mike Co has the action. Mike. Yeah, right now the options market implying a move of about 5.9%. That's more than double the 2.5% or so that the company has averaged over the last eight quarters. Puts out trading calls. In fact, it traded 1.7 times the average daily put volume. And the most active options were the August 80 puts. We saw a purchase of 4,000 of those. The buyer paid $1.35 a contract. Ultimately, about 9,200 of them traded. Buyers of those puts are obviously betting that the stock could fall below that $80 strike price. They could be either hedging a long stock position or just betting on disappointing earnings. 
All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more Options Action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, not all banks are created equal. The divergence in two groups of financials that could mean big things for your portfolio. We've got the details when Fast Money comes right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Regional banks have been outperforming their larger cap counterparts in 2022, but what's the outlook for the rest of the year? Leslie Picker is sitting down with Tom Michaud, CEO of KBW, a Stiefel company. They're kicking off their Community Bank Investors Conference tomorrow. Leslie. Hey, Mel. Thank you. And thank you, Tom, so much for being here. So clearly a big theme at this conference is going to be the divergence between regional banks and their larger peers. Is past performance indicative of future performance here? Do you think that the key themes that have helped these regional banks outperform is going to continue given just the headwinds on the horizon? We really do. And the story for the regional banks has been one of revenue growth because we see a lot of loan growth uh, currently in the market, even though we think it will slow down by year end. But we think the loan growth story of the recent quarter is still intact. And also the interest rate cycle that we're in right now. Uh, the Fed is going to continue to be, keep raising rates. And that's something that's going to help the banks as they move away from zero with the interest rate policy. But eventually the concern is that if there's a, a deep recession or even a mild recession, that credit conditions could worsen from there. So it, is that a concern of yours? So that that's the I'd say that's the number one concern of investors is that the Fed's policy is going to drive the economy into a recession. Our view is that with the really large gap in valuation, which for regional banks, it could be the four to five P.E. multiple discount from where it normally trades, trades about 40 percent below where it normally trades on a relative P.E. ratio. Regional banks have very big dividends. We believe a lot of that uh, pessimism or concern or uncertainty is already in the valuation. And so we think some of the high performing regional banks, really good companies, excellent management teams, we think you're getting more than paid for that risk uh, that the economy will continue to slow. I don't think the stocks are priced for a crisis, but we also don't believe a crisis is going to happen. And what about a potential Fed pivot? And that's kind of gotten more into the, the sentiment of investors these days as yeah. well. And obviously, lower rates would kind of erase potentially some of the benefit they've gotten with regard to net interest income, which is that profitability that they generate from being able to charge more from interest. So this whole regulatory pivot thing, I think, is really interesting. In my opinion, the, the definition of a, of a Fed pivot is two things. It's number one is, has the, and you have to get inside the mind of the Fed and predict the future, which is, has the Fed done a good enough job to break the back of inflation expectations? And then number two is, is the economy weak enough that they now need to go into accommodation? I don't believe that's going to happen. I know there's a lot of money invested thinking that the Fed's going to be cutting rates next year. I don't personally believe it. And also, if you read the studies that the Fed has published themselves, there was a very interesting one of a couple weeks ago that I read about, which the Fed has said that they really need to stay on task for mission number one. It's very hard for the Fed to juggle a lot of different priorities. I personally believe they are focused on inflation, and I think that they're going to get to a steady state environment with rates before they immediately pivot. Now, of course, if the economy is much worse, I could, that could happen. I personally don't believe it's going to happen. Hmm. Mel has a question for you, Tom. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, Tom, good to see you. Um, so what do you make of a 10-year yield that goes from 3.4 to 2.6 in a matter of weeks? And you say that you're most bullish on the spread lenders. This can't be good for them if, if we're sitting here at 2.6. Well, so, potentially so, head lower. So it's, a, it's an interesting question because if the 2.6 has embedded in it, now I, I know that the market, the Fed fund futures, think that the Fed's going to, 
be cutting rates by next year. I personally don't believe that they will. If the Fed gets to a steady level of rates, then that is still going to be good for the regional banks. Because remember, it's not so much our rates, uh, is the Fed funds rate 330, is it 350? It's not zero. We've essentially had zero for years, and the banking industry was not built for zero. So if it gets back to something that's considered more typical, that's going to be an environment where the banking industry is going to be able to operate more efficiently and better. And so that, that's why we are, continue to be optimistic about the regional banks. Tom, thank you so much. Clearly an inflection point for both the economy and all sorts of banks. We appreciate your perspective in breaking it down for Great us. Great to be with you. Mel? All right. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Tom. Good to see you. Karen, what do you, what do you think? Anything but zero is good. Well, <laughs> any, I, do, I do agree. Anything but zero is good. Actually, this kind of funky inversion isn't terrible either because it's all about, you know, that the net interest income and net interest margins are improving everywhere. However, we always come to this issue. If the market thinks, oh, inversions are terrible for banks, so we better sell all the banks, I guess it doesn't matter that they're going to be more profitable. I'm still holding on to them because they are going to be more profitable. And ultimately, I think the value will out. Well, here's one thing that I think the market's underappreciating. I think it might be a secular trend for, for all banks, but especially the regionals. The loan growth that's going on in commercial and industrial is extraordinary. Second quarter, you had 5 to 10 percent uh, commercial and industrial loan growth. I think people are expecting the same for the third quarter. Remember, banks were not lending for a long time. Remember, the whole thing coming out of the crisis was encouraging the banks to lend. I think it's taken a long time to work through a lot of this. I also think the credit dynamics, especially with technology, are giving banks the power to make loans um, with a comfort zone in addition to their traditional metrics. And I think part of this is underappreciated in the valuation of these of these banks. Brian Kelly, what do you tell your two uh, compatriots here? Well, I, I mean, I think they're 100 percent right in terms of the banks are probably going to make more money because they're making mm-hmm. more loans. But here's the thing. Making more loans is money creation, which, again, supports the economy, which makes inflation stickier. So if I'm a banker and for 20 years I haven't made any money, I'm going to make every single loan that I can at these rates. So I think that is another reason why the Fed is far behind the curve. Guy? BK, man, he is channeling his Chad's Michael Michaels tonight. (laughs) Goldman Sachs, and we talked about it when it was trading 275, you know, they'll trade their way out of this, and that's proven to be correct. Stocks dropped from 275, 330 or so. I think that stock can continue higher. It concerns me, by the way, that J.P. Morgan is not able to bounce on what's been a pretty good tape. Coming up, Boeing's big day, the stock taking flight. We'll tell you what had shares flying high when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Boeing topping the tape today. The stock jumping to three-month highs after the company obtained FAA approval to resume deliveries of its 787 Dreamliner jet after a 14-month halt. Guy, you buy this bounce? I think you can say with it, Tim's been on this and good for him. And free cash flow is the story. I'll say this. You go back and look at a chart, and Carter Braxton Worth can speak of this. You're still in a very significant downtrend from the all-time high of March 2019. I think it has room probably up to... 185 or so, then you pull the ripcord. Guy talked about free cash flow a billion more this last earnings than people were expecting. I think the 787 is their most most profitable jet. Conviction buy on Goldman, three and a half month highs. You stay there. All right. Up next, final trades. Time 
for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Brian, empty drawers, Kelly. <laughs> well, you can put this one in there. TLT, probably not a bad buy here. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, so uh, Lululemon, I love it, but it's getting a little bit stretched here on valuation. I don't want to sell it, so I'm going to sell some September 330 calls for 12 bucks. Protects me up to 342. Guy Adami. I don't want to talk about Brian Strauss. I will talk about the moves at the deadline the Yankees are making. I know you agree, killing it. Lockheed Martin, too cheap in this environment. Tim. I'm not sure if it's going to be enough, Guy, but for Chevron, certainly share buybacks, I think, are enough to continue to drive this. Again, major pullback yet holding key levels. I think the story in energy, OPEC, this week. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We will see you right back here at 5 tomorrow for more Fast Meantime Mad Money with the one and only Jim Cramer starts right now.